Hello, and welcome back to Season 2 of the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast. Season 2 will focus on archival projects from conservation to documentation. Each of our guests are world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Coptic, Islamic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our other programs and activities, including virtual lectures and tours, by visiting our website at rc.org. You can also visit our archives podcast at archives.rc.org. And you can support our work by joining our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support this podcast. Today's episode is episode two of the Archives podcast, Preventive Conservation at the Red Monastery with Dr. Nicholas Warner and conducted by RC's archives manager, Andreas Kostopoulos. If you want to listen to our other episodes, visit the RC podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Thank you for joining us today and enjoy the episode. Good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are in the globe. This is Andreas, RC's Archives Manager, and welcome back to RC's podcast season two. This season is dedicated to RC's conservation archives, and I'm very excited to have today Dr. Nicholas Warner. It's a beautiful sunny day in Cairo with a temperature of 22 Celsius, well into November, only a few weeks till the end of the year. Dr. Nicholas is a colleague. He's RC's Director of Cultural Heritage Projects. Dr. Nicholas Warner is an architect and architectural historian trained at Cambridge University, United Kingdom, and the Graduate School of Design, Harvard University. He has lived in Egypt since 1993, where he has participated in and directed numerous projects related to the documentation, preservation, and presentation of heritage sites from all periods. Amongst these are the Cusser Ford Visitor Center, the Saqqara New Kingdom Necropolis Project, the Tombs of Anin and Tombs of Mina in Luxor, the North Harga Oasis Survey, New York University's excavations at Amheida, Dakla Oasis, the Red and White Monasteries in Sohag. His work in Cairo includes the Cairo Mapping Project, a new map of historic Cairo showing the plans of approximately 550 buildings in the medieval city, open-air museums in the South Roman Tower of the Fortress of Babylon and Matareya, and the restoration of Geyer Anderson Museum. There is much more in your bio, Nicholas, if I may, but I'm sure people know you, and for the ones that they don't, they can always visit rc.org and read your full bio. How are you today, Nicholas? Very well, thank you, Andreas. So um, today we are going to talk about the Red Monastery Project, RC's flagship conservation project started in 2004 under the direction of Dr. Elizabeth Bollman. The project began with the documentation and conservation of wall paintings in the sanctuary of the church by a team of Italian conservators. It then developed with excavations in the nave and architectural conservation in all areas of the church, as well as the medieval tower to the south of the nave. The final phase of the project from 2015 to the present, focused on the conservation of the wall paintings in the name, and finally the construction of a shelter to protect these paintings. Am I right in my narrative? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've been involved personally in the project since 2006, and I'm the only member of the original team who's still actively concerned with the um, protection of this monument. Um, and we are, in fact, coming close to the end of 
most of the things that we need to do at the church after um, this very long period of time. That's almost the, 20 years of work, right? Don't remind me. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, my involvement was initially from 2006 as um, a documentation specialist. And then I moved into the architectural conservation um, of all areas of the church. Uh, that is to say the sanctuary where um, the bulk of the effort had been expended in the conservation of the wall paintings. Mm -hmm. When that was finished, um, we moved into trying to... Um, fit it out, as it were, for its future life as a church. It had a past life, obviously, as a monastic church, but we were designing for the future to try and ensure the preservation of the paintings as much as possible um, through a variety of protective measures. Um, that also was a site management activity that extended out into the nave of the church mm -hmm. um, and also to the medieval tower that was constructed, a very large building that was constructed on the south side of the nave. Um, and in, in that area, we installed a small visitor center for people to be able to appreciate some of the history of the church and also the history of the conservation project that had taken place over so many years. And we also added um, visitor information um, at key points throughout the building. So that was really my involvement in the project. So it started off with documentation and then it ended up being much more physical conservation and presentation, like many of these projects. Right. Um, I mean, there are so many questions that I have about the entire uh, project, but I would rather like focus this time in discussing about the construction of the shelter, right? Since it was the latest activity there. So can you tell us please, like why the shelter was necessary? In 2015, um, attention moved from the sanctuary of the church to the nave outside. Um, and uh, the nave uh, was composed of medieval walls, so they're not 6th century walls, they are um, brick plastered walls dating to probably a post-earthquake rebuilding of the monastery in the late 13th century, and they only have one plaster phase on them, so in one phase of paintings, or several painting phases, but on the same plaster layer, which means that they um, are all of that vintage. So in 2015, um, work started on cleaning these walls and the paintings that they contained. And at that time, there were only visible paintings and inscriptions, because the inscriptional content is also very important, on the west wall. And it was only through the conservation of the, of the, of the process that the paintings were revealed on the north wall, which is the long wall of the side of the nave. The actual nave itself um, was in ruins when the project started, um, and that's another story. But uh, as a parallel project, we uh, embarked on a an anastylosis, that's say a reconstruction of the of the columns of the nave using fragments of shafts, column shafts, and capitals that were lying around the um, ruined interior of the of the building. So these paintings were extremely fragile. Um, they were painted with quite fugitive paints and um, they were in full sun. So it was apparent from a very early point in the process of conservation that they needed to be covered with a shelter in order to protect them primarily from the sun, but secondarily from um, um, rain, 
I have seen it rain in Sohag, not very much. I have people, been there. People always doubt whether it rains, but it I, does. I have been there. I lived there for three months and I never saw like a drop of rain. But... Ah, well, I have I have seen it yeah. rain in Sohag. So uh, it's, and of course, with climate change, who knows That's what's coming in the future in terms mm -hmm. of rainfall in previously relatively arid areas um, of Egypt. I mean, rain when it falls in the south of Egypt tends to be very concentrated and very heavy yeah, um, and quite damaging. Um, so, so sun was was the main enemy, um, and then secondarily rain, uh, and thirdly, I would say um, pigeons. Um, a part <laughs> of this project, a very important part of the project, was to reduce the opportunities for pigeons to roost anywhere near the the painted surfaces um, because they would cause an amazing amount of, of damage um, over time. So that's why the shelter was actually necessary. Right. Um, so um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the stakeholders that were uh, involved in this uh, project? All of our work is done in collaboration with the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities. Um, in fact, it wasn't called that at the beginning of the project. It was right. actually not even a ministry. It was the Supreme Council of Antiquities. Yes. So that is something that has changed. The, 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 the entity, the government entity, has changed its name three times during the course of this project. Um, so they are represented on the ground um, by local inspectors who operate mm -hmm. out of an office in Sahag um, and at national level by various committees um, uh, relative to Coptic and Islamic monuments in this case. Our other main um, stakeholder and constituent um, was the Coptic church um, and specifically the monks um, at the Red Monastery. Um, right. the, the monastery of, the Red Monastery was actually reoccupied or reinvigorated with monks um, in the um, late 1980s, um, both the Red Monastery and its much larger companion, the White Monastery, had um, uh, were effectively colonized by monks at that time as part of a wider um, renaissance of Co Coptic culture. And so when we arrived to do this project, the, there were relatively few monks who'd been installed um, and uh, the, the abbot of the monastery was living in the in the medieval tower next to the, mm -hmm. next to the church, um, and there were maybe three, four at the most, um, and now it's a, a monastic population of of uh, more than twenty five or thirty. Um, oh. It grows every year, um, and uh, visitation grows as well, which is something else I'll I'll touch on in a moment. And then our third real constituent were the conservators themselves and yeah. architectural and art historians, you know, who obviously were essentially the drivers of the project. Um, and of course, I count myself as being one of that one of that group of, of individuals. Right. Well, I mean, I can't stop thinking of like, what does it take to obtain permissions, you know, for like installing like a shelter or like any other like work you're doing in a heritage site. Um, so um, can you share, share with us some more information? I'm sure there are lots of people out there who would like to know what does it take to obtain permissions, you know, from, you know, the local authorities or what, does, what is the process? Can you walk us through, please? Yes, I'll try and condense that because it's, uh, in this case, it's been a very, very long process. Um, but 
essentially in order to carry out work on any monument um, in Egypt, an application has to be made. And that's mm -hmm. whether it's a, a foreign applicant or a local applicant. An applicant, an application has to be made to something known as the permanent committee uh, of the antiquities department, which meets regularly and decides on um, the applications that are made for conservation or for um, for any kind of work on any archaeological site in Egypt. And at the same time, you know, in this particular case, we'd had to also deal very strongly with our our, um, our, our our monastic stakeholders. So there was this ongoing discussion as well between the two. So sometimes their views aligned, but most are not most often they did not, um, mm -hmm. because principally the, the the church regarded it as being a place of living a living heritage site, if you like, and the um, the antiquities department would prefer it if there was no no activity at all. Um, so yeah. what we did was to try and mm -hmm. find a balance between those two in in our work. Um, I mean, as far as the shelter specifically is concerned, um, it was clear from about 2014 to me that we had to carry out um, the setting up of the columns in the nave, really in order to clear the space so that it could be um, reused by people um, and also to reduce the, the damage that was being caused by sprinkling the ground with water. Um, and when we started this project, mm -hmm. Uh, there was a temporary sh shelter in the form of a shade structure bay built out of fabric on on metal on uh, wooden posts that occupied the ruined area of the nave, and this was because at that time the church was the only church available for public worship, um, and subsequent to then two new churches, actually three, have now been built. Um, one of which is a colossal church, new church that houses at least five thousand people. Um, so the pressure was removed from carrying out services in for the main public services in the historic church, which is a very good thing um, in the long term future of the building. Um, and most of the congregation were effectively moved uh, to these new um, new churches. It's not to say that the church isn't continuously used. It is, but mm -hmm. um, by much smaller groups of people and on more um, uh, infrequent occasions. So as part of that uh, that time, um, the nave was regularly watered with with water to keep the dust down. So water is an enemy um, of of all uh, fragile surfaces. So I was quite keen to get that out, and the only way of doing that was actually to reconstruct the nave and pave it at the same time. So and that happened in two thousand fourteen. Yes, right? it did. Yeah. Um, I mean, I may be a bit hazy on some of the precise dates, but about then, yeah. yes. Um, so we set up the columns, and at that point, um, it was apparent that there were the paintings on the nave wall at the west end, um, and I designed um, a a shelter for just the west end of the of the, of the nave, and that was submitted for approval um, to the antiquities department, and and it was refused. We we'll come back to why these proposals are refused in a moment. But then as things went on, um, we discovered more and more paintings and inscriptions on the North Wall. So it was clear that the project to build a shelter would have to be extended to include the North the side North. of the nave as well. So that was that was in, um, in 2015, 16 and 17. 
the actual complete shelter design was 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 first submitted in 2017, as far as I recall, in all of its details, um, and uh, it was refused again. The main reason for these refusals, uh, constant refusals, I mean, it took six years to get permission to build the shelter, is because of the perceived um, massive change in the appearance of the site. And it's true that um, it, it does change the appearance of the site, but I think we'll talk about that in a, in a moment and, and why I think that the shelter is yeah. an appropriate thing. Um, so in 2019, to go back to our, our trajectory of, of trying to get permission to, to build this thing, uh, we did, in an attempt to convince the Antiquities Department, um, a sun path analysis um, on a computer model of the nave that had been generated through 3D scanning um, carried out in, in 2015 and then subsequently in 2019. As another important part of the project, we first scanned the um, the, the the building in 2015, uh, which predated most of the um, work that was done on the nave. So we, we did it again in 2019, um, which is also interesting because it allows for change detection analysis so that you can see if any parts of the building are structurally moving, which they're not. Um, and then uh, we made some more modifications to the, to the actual um, column set up in the nave, um, really in order to be absolutely sure that we had the necessary supports in place every six meters for the structure of the shelter, should it ever be given permission. And I had actually given up hope entirely. Um, uh, and that's when we got the permission to build it in 2021. So wow. it was a process that started essentially in 2014 um, and was completed in 2021. So that was the final approval, which came when I was not expecting it at all. Yeah. Wow. Seven years. That's, but it happened. So it did. Yes. Good. So, um, yeah, I heard you talking about like, you know, all these different stages of the work. So I'm wondering, like, um, how long it took you to finish the design phase first, and then how long it took you to uh, finish the actual construction of the shelter, you know, like from build, from like building it, completed. I mean, if we're just talking about the shelter itself, I suppose it took uh, a week of schematic design, um, two weeks of detailed design drawings, um, and then um, it was built off site. Um, it was a completely dismantleable steel structure, which was made off site, and it took a month to make it off site mm -hmm. and a little under a month to install it on site. So a very, very short um, period for from design concept to execution. Yeah. Yeah. Comparing like it took like seven years to get the permission, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's made of steel, the shelter. So, okay. and the reason for that is because there are termites in the monastery and I'm very, very anxious to avoid providing um, any further food for the termites. We've okay. had various attempts to try and control the termite population, mm -hmm. um, but it's a losing battle, I fear, because uh, with so many new buildings being built around the church today, a lot more water is going into the ground. There's a lot more leakage. Termites thrive in in humid conditions. Right. So, um, whatever we do is is I think um, I won't say it's doomed, but I would prefer to try and restrict the amount of food that termites might have um, inside inside the building. 
And of course, that was another reason why the shelter kept on being refused, because I personally said it had to be made of steel. Mm -hmm. And everybody is very opposed to the use of steel in um, historic contexts here. And they insisted that it should be wood. And I said, no, it can't be wood. Um, I mean, at the same time, um, it's designed to fit with the original architecture of the basilica of the church. So That's the shelter occupies a space, which is the space of the missing gallery of the church, the structure of the shelter, um, is actually placed within the beam holes, the pockets that would have held the original wooden beams for the support of the gallery. So what we were doing also had another purpose, dare I say it, which was to mm -hmm. recreate through the shelter some of the sense of the lost uh, architecture of the of the nave of the building. And one of my first experiences when, when we got the shelter up yeah. was standing inside one of the aisles of the church, which was then covered by this new shelter, and appreciating for the first time, in fact, the scale of those aisles of the church, and therefore the scale of the interior, of the, the lost interior of the church. And that was, for me, um, I suppose that was a really worthwhile moment. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've seen photos, you know, as the archives manager, you know, all the project deliverables come here. So I've seen photos um, that you took like uh, in the nighttime and uh, I can't stop from like admiring like the, the lighting fixtures. So um, and the way that it looks at night. So you want to tell us a little bit more about the, the lighting yes. fixtures? Yes. I mean, it's only it's only um, when you work at a site and spend a lot of time there. Um, including night times occasionally, that you realize that these yeah. buildings have a life at night. Mm -hmm. They're not just occupied exactly. during the day. Exactly. In fact, in the Red Monastery, the main, the main use of the building by the community is at night, in the evening and at night, which is when people come and sit in the nave. Mm -hmm. um, they, they chat with the monks. Um, it's, a, it's, the, it's the time of most social interaction. Um, yeah. And... So it was important that we should provide some uh, illumination. Um, and I had done it in an earlier phase of the project with a different form of lighting. But in this case, since we'd built the shelter, I was able to use the structure of the shelter to um, good effect in installing yeah. a number of LED light fittings which were focused on the wall paintings. Um, and I should say at this point, the LED is not um, destructive in terms of ultraviolet light mm -hmm. so it, there's no there's no risk from that um, and so it's, it's actually remained a very popular uh, local hangout in the evenings even pilgrims I mean the, the the church receives numerous I mean very numerous um, pilgrims coming from all over Egypt mm -hmm. what we might call the local um, religious tourist market um, and in fact, the economy of the monastery is largely driven by the need to provide monastic hospitality and the expectations that um, people would be generous in giving um, to the church. Um, so there are, there are also now an increasing number of foreigners because we have uh, foreign tourists, I should say, yeah. despite the security problems, the perceived security problems of, of, of uh, that area of Egypt, mm -hmm. the there's still a lot of concern because it's not a heavily touristed area. The concern when tourists um, show up in a bus, there's a kind of panic amongst the normal security people yeah. there. Um, and this may change with increasing use. 
So uh, yes, the, the nighttime aspect of it is is, uh, is satisfying reuse. I mean, we did in all parts of the project, we had to consider reuse and we had to consider maintenance. I'm very happy to say that the that the local monastic community has provided you know excellent cleaning and maintenance of the building, um, and I think far better than I would have expected right. yeah. um, and they are to be commended for that and they really do appreciate the value of what they have mm -hmm. which is one of the most beautiful churches in Egypt absolutely and I have personally like visited the monastery in the daytime and like I've seen the paintings in the nave and like comparing to the photographs that I have seen at nighttime it's like it's a completely different thing because like at night I mean the 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 lighting is somehow like highlighting all the paint and the color and it's it's coming like as if it's alive you know it's a, a gallery there and i mean it's it's a big difference you know so i mean definitely it has to do with the morning light and the sun um but uh, i really admire the photographs that i have seen that they were taken during the night time well i hope you can go and look at the original I hope so. <laughs> in, I hope so in, in person is yeah. the monastery open at night so visitation is allowed yes. like to go like after like sunset. yes set. yes absolutely good yes Good. So um, I have one more question for you, Nicholas. Um, knowing that um, installing a shelter in a heritage site is quite invasive, um, what was the considerations yourself and the team had to make? I think I touched on that before, but um, essentially we tried to make this structure as light as possible mm -hmm. and as reversible as possible. So it is reversible. So it is a fully reversible structure. Okay. Um, it, it, you know, it, it would take, it took three weeks to put it up. It would take three weeks to take it down. Okay. Everything okay. is fixed with screws um, and it's a very, very um, simple to dismantle structure. The actual shelter roof itself is made of a, of a, um, an aluminium profiled sandwich panel, which has got mm -hmm. insulation in it. So it's flat on the bottom and corrugated on the top. Um, obviously it drains, it has a slight uh, fall on it so that it doesn't uh, collect water in any way should it rain. Um, and the insulation also provides a measure of, of um, protection from the sun, or the heat of the sun. Yeah. So um, from that point of view, that's also a good thing. Um, so, as I said, the, the actual beam holes were used, the original beam holes were used to insert the new structure into. Um, so there was no uh, damage that was caused to the, any other areas of the wall. So we replicated the position of the original structure and we fixed everything back to the columns um, that were supporting the structure every six yeah. meters with um, a set of, of, of stainless steel um, column supports, as it were, extensions. So it's also provided some lateral stability to the north wall, which is a, an important mm -hmm. consideration mm -hmm. because um, um, these the, the, the walls, the north walls of both the red and the white monastic churches, um, subject to a lot of pressure from wind. And in the case of the white monastery, has now led to an unfortunate collapse. Um. I'm aware that you're visiting the monastery regularly. Um, it's one of your homes, your many homes that you have around Egypt, right? So do you have any feedback to share from the local community regarding the project, the entire project, you know, from 
the the work that has been done in the sanctuary, the nave, and the shelter? I mean, how do they feel about it? Well, the shelter is, is very much appreciated by everybody mm -hmm. because it gives, forget the paintings, you know, it's people. It gives shade to the people as well as, as well as the painting. So, you yeah. know, in the in the height of of summer, you know, it's a very valuable um, piece of shade that we've created there. So mm -hmm. um, I think everybody's very happy about that. I mean, I think that people are appreciative of the of the work that was done. Um, and they they have reaped a benefit, a financial benefit in the fact that we have so many more visitors from all over the world, not just from Egypt going there. So I think that there is a genuine understanding of the value of of, of this, of the work that we've done. Um, and also the religious value of the building, in fact, because now mm -hmm. people can actually see the paintings of the saints, which they never used to be able to do. And we've also, in the most recent phase of work, and I find this particularly interesting, is we've uncovered inscriptions in uh, languages other than Coptic and Arabic. We now have mm. Syriac inscriptions and Giz inscriptions. So people coming from Ethiopia and Syria, pilgrims coming from that, and uh, also graffiti showing um, uh, lions holding crosses, which is a, a, a typical um, mode of representation from Ethiopia as well. One of the most moving moments I had at the church was when a small group of Ethiopian pilgrims were visiting um, earlier this year. And they spoke the inscriptions that were written in Gize on the walls of the church. And I think it had been probably a very, very long time since anybody had actually spoken those words of dedication. And for me, that was a great moment because it also you know, affirmed the place of the church in, in the religious life, not only of the local community, but also the wider international community. And that's something that really the project has achieved in the most remarkable way, which is to transform a monument that was previously only known to a handful of scholars, a blackened interior that was never appreciated into a real jewel um, of Egyptian cultural heritage. And I'm quite proud to have been able to play a part in that whole process of regeneration. Yeah, it was definitely a great project. Um, uh, beautiful. Thank you very much, uh, Nicholas, for this uh, talk. Um, it was it was a great pleasure to have you here and like give us like all this beautiful like narration about the project. Um, I would like to say that the photographic documentation of the project and the construction of the shelter can be found on Arce's archives at Cairo office. And um, hopefully by mid of 2023, the project deliverables, all the project deliverables will be available online on archives.arce.org. Thank you very much, Nicholas. It was great having you here. You're very welcome, Andreas. My pleasure. Thank you. You just listened to Preventive Conservation at the Red Monastery with Dr. Nicholas Warner and RC's Archives Manager, Andreas Kostopoulos. Please visit our website at www.rc.org slash podcast for more information or contact us at podcast.rc.org. We invite you to catch up on past episodes of the RC Podcast via Apple, Spotify, or Google. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.